Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, um, I guess, Monday afternoon. And uh, I'm going to do, uh, I was going to do a bio now, but something made me think differently, as you'll see in a second. But uh, I want to thank our sponsors, the Pollocks in um, in Columbus, Columbus and Baltimore, Paul Pollock. Tomorrow is Kathy's birthday. Okay, very nice. And gratitude for sending her. Days are romantic. Uh, but thank you very much um, for sponsoring us in honor of that occasion. That's a nice occasion. Uh, I assume their Pollock's going to be in Columbus for Yontif, I suppose. Uh, whatever the case is, um, let's proceed. I was going to do a bio, but somebody sent me a, uh, an email overnight. And basically was that, I mean, you know, uh, and was asking the questions, you know, how do adults, uh, or connect with the Pesach story? Um, if I understand the question correctly, uh, then, you know, how do you believe in miracles? And I feel like he says, what's the point of saying Hashem comes down with miracles? And Purim seems a more complete story, he said. And maybe the problem is that, you know, there's no human agency over here. Everything is God interfering. It, I, I, I'm, that might possibly uh, be similar to what happens over there. And uh, in other words, it's just a story that the, the slaves are passive and everything is done for him by Hashem. I believe that was what he meant to say. And these things don't happen in life. But they happen all the time in the stories. I just lose interest. He says, when I read and hear these things, I have no way to explain. And what's the right way to approach this? These are heavy questions. But um, it's pushed my mind in a certain direction. Because if I, again, I'm assuming that I'm reading this correctly. Uh, and I respect everybody's opinion. Uh, but, you know, when it comes down to miracles or things like the story of Pesach, which, of course, is the core miracle stories or the existence of God for that, is a belief or not a belief. <laughs> This is the year 2022, you know, the people choose to believe or they don't choose to believe. That's what it boils down to after all the speeches and everything is over. Uh, but, you know, not, you can't prove something like that, but it, I often, how should I put it? If a person is a believer, then it can give you an angle of vision for past historical events. Now, uh, to connect it with our own time, I was just thinking about this as a result of this. It just popped in my head. And I'm going to share it with you. I did a talk a couple weeks ago, once or twice, about Putin because the war is going on with Putin invading the Ukraine and all that. And I try to explain to the best of my personal ability, that's all I can ever do, you know, that you're American or you're British or whoever listening to this or Israeli or whatever. Um, I don't think I have too many visitor, uh, listeners in Russia. Uh, you never know, but I doubt it. And same thing with Ukraine. But uh, we have some in Poland, by the way, but uh, not in Russia, Ukraine. So uh, they look at through the angles of the, of the prism of their history. You understand? Uh, I'm an American or I'm Jewish. I look at the 20th century that way. If you're American, you look at the American century. If you want to be a pessimist, you can say, look how much money we've 
you know, put up in the dead, the, you know, we're in a deep hole and so forth and so on. If you're Jewish, you say the 20th century you saw the Holocaust and then the state of Israel. Uh, the rise of Israel is like the biggest uh, miracle of the 20th century, even though Israel is very problematic and it's not from and blah, 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 and all the rest of it, which is true. Nevertheless, uh, to put it in simple terms, Israel has not turned out the way Ben-Gurion necessarily envisioned it, not turned out exactly the way Golda Meir had in mind. And it's become the number one headquarters of from Judaism. Uh, you're not going to get anywhere else in the world where your million people show up to the funeral of a gadol. And even if it wasn't a million, say half a million, a quarter million, you, may, you know what I'm saying, gigantic numbers, and it's growing. So Eretz Yisrael turned out to be an extraordinary um, story in the 20th century. Ain't no way you'd have all this from stuff going on if there hadn't been Israel and the Jews remained in, in Gullis. It's, it's just silly to even think about this. Now, the thing is, um, so we look. We would look at it, I think you should look you know, at the, the, the dramatic events of the 20th century. I'm not talking, I don't know if you would say it's miraculous, but it kind of is, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I'm thinking of Turkey. Uh, now it's the year 2022. Let's go back 100 years, 110 years, 1912. At that time, if you don't know, I'm talking about Google a map of the Turkish Empire in 1912. There used to be a great empire called the Ottoman Turkish Empire, starting in the 1200s and really picking up steam in the 1400s. They uh, conquered a gigantic area and ruled it. Uh, they were the owners. A third of Europe, they conquered up to up to including Hungary. Budapest was held by the Turks, was a Turkish province. Uh, so a huge area of Europe, including a piece of the Ukraine, the Crimea was all part of the Turkish Empire once upon a time. Uh, and then they lost that, you know, over the late 1600s and 1700s, early 1800s, they basically, you know, lost bit by bit of what they owned in Europe. And by the time you get to 1912, they were pretty much kicked out of Europe, except that little piece that they still have, shine. But I'm not talking about that. But the Turkish Empire continued to rule the Middle East. That they didn't lose. And the Middle East was Muslim mostly. So that they were on more like a home ground. When they ruled Europe, uh, Europe, they were dominating Christians who didn't want to be under them. But when you're in the Middle East, it's a more complicated story because the Sultan of Turkey was the Caliph of Islam, like the head religious figure. Now, obviously, Jews are interested in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael had been in the Turkish Empire since 1517. That's a long time where I come from. Now, the Jews said, we want Mashiach now, and so forth, but how are you going to get around the fact that Turkey, which is a Muslim empire, ruled the Middle East, had no intention of giving up any of it if it didn't have to, especially Eretz Yisrael. How's that supposed to work? Now, suppose you're Erdogan, the head of Turkey today, Dachal area. Just think about it like this. You, if you're a Turk, you're going to look back at the last 100 years, 110 years, and bang your head against a wall. If you're Jewish, you see Yad Hashem. That's my point. And I don't think I'm speaking in frummy terms, but I think it's historically remarkable. You just don't consider, don't stop to consider it. That's my opinion. That's all I can ever share with you. And I'll tell you what I mean. Turkey was a big empire, and then it wasn't. They went into a decline. That's why it's progressively they started losing their territories in Europe. 
uh, Hungary, and then eventually Romania, and then eventually uh, Bulgaria, and so forth, Greece, little by little. And the Turks weren't strong enough to stop this. Now, they were tough, and they're quite some warriors. They were, you know, amazing warriors. But they fell behind in terms of technology because the Muslim world didn't have the modern science. They didn't have a secularity which produced the modern science and therefore, among other things, produced the modern economies and the modern uh, military weapons. So the Christian Europeans got the military weapons and the Turks had to sort of like buy it off of them or steal it off them or something like that. That's how it worked. You know, so the modern armies were modern. The Turkish army was pre-modern until the Turks modernized their armies in the 1800s. That's how it went. Now, um, the problem with the Turks was they got the they got in debt over their heads. Since they were an expanding empire all the time, they liked to have wars. Once upon a time, they liked to have wars. Wars are unbelievably expensive. People don't realize, and the Turks did too much of that. And plus, they conquered so much territory, they invited a counterattack, especially from Russia. And by the time we're finished, they were deep in the in debt. This would be like, you know, already in the 1820s, 30s, and that sort of thing. And they couldn't get out of it. Um, theoretically, you could get out of it. But they weren't in a situation, it's too complicated to explain now, where they could, you know, do the necessary economies and things like this. And anyway, the Psalms of Turkey weren't built that way. As a result, their debts got deeper and deeper, and their finances got more and more catastrophic. Believe me, they were borrowing like crazy from the Rothschilds and the others. You know, you can get the Neil Ferguson book if you want all the details. Uh, and other bankers as well. But they got in over their head. There's no way you're going to get out of it. And this is why Turkey came to be called the sick man of Europe. Meaning they were in bad shape. You understand? And uh, how are you going to get out of it? Now, this is a real problem. We have this in the United States of America today. It doesn't have to be the Ottoman Turkish Muslim Empire. You can have a modern secular state like the USA. For a whole bunch of reasons, we're thirty trillion in the hole, thirty trillion, and I don't see any way of getting out of it. I mean, it's terrible, by the way. It's just terrible. I'm bemoaning it. Actually, I thought when Trump was the president, he'd declare Chapter Eleven. You know, that's his specialty. That was his last speech on the way out, but he didn't. And so the result is thirty-one trillion, thirty-two trillion. I mean, it comes a point is it's not possible to sustain. What happens if we have sixty trillion debt or ninety trillion? Then all your taxes go just to pay, you know, the, the service on the debt. You don't have any money to spend on anything. So just, you know, you know in other words, it's not something you can, you can constantly kick down the road. Sooner or later you have to confront it. But I don't see the slightest chance of any president that I can see in the future confronting it. What are you going to say? We're going to stop Social Security. We're going to stop welfare. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to stop welfare. We're going to do this. Not happening. Once you have groups that get money... From the government, they organized lobbies and they ain't giving it up. So we're in Gahaktatsaris, okay? In Gahaktatsaris. Now, America is a modern uh, post-industrial country with a computer revolution and things like that, dot com. And so we have a ton of money coming in. The Turks had our problem and didn't have a ton of money coming in. So therefore, they were always in big crisis. The Ottoman Turkish Empire in the 1800s uh, and into the 1900s. This was the plan of Zionism in the beginning. Theodore Herzl, when he started the Zionist movement in whatever it was, in 1895, so um, he said that we don't want to go in like thieves in the night and steal somebody else's country. We want to get Palestine as a Jewish state, 
from Turkey with the agreement of Turkey, and it'll be a quid pro quo, Herzl said. I will undertake to raise the money from all the rich Jews, the Rothschilds, and so forth, and whatever the Turkish debt is, however many billions, will pay it off. And then you'll be in a in 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 a great situation. Imagine if somebody could come and say like this. Suppose you had a mega trillionaire, you know, I don't know, guy who owns ten Googles. So you can say like this, thirty trillion, no problem. I'll pay it off and now America doesn't know a penny. Immediately, one third, one fourth, I don't know, one big chalik of the national you know, uh, expenditure will be gone. If you're a Democrat, you say, oh, now we have all this money to for more social programs. If you're a Republican, you say, give it back to the taxpayer, you know, in a, in a, in a rebate or something. Whatever the case is, it'd be a lot e big ease on the American situation. But that's a pipe dream, you understand? Well, Herzl at that time said to the Turks, he went and talked to the Sultan of Turkey and to the Turkish government because he said, I'm not out to you know go behind anybody's back. I'm trying to do this straight up. I'm offering a chance, uh, 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 an opportunity on behalf of the Jewish people. It's a separate question whether he had the, the the right to do that, but he did it, and that is will buy, so to speak, Palestine by meaning that will raise a huge sum of money, which will put Turkey in a in a good spot, and it'll wipe out all your debts, and you can start all over again, which would be a trisa mason for Turkey, Turkish Empire. You'll be in fantastic shape. All of which the Egyptians should pay by giving us Eretz Yisrael, Palestine. The Turks said no. They weren't interested. That's not the way they thought. Most countries don't think that way. And this is the story of Theodor Herzl. He went a bunch of times to Turkey. And, and believe me, I've had students in college who are Turks, and they know from the Turkish, uh, what's the right word, popular culture, what the Sultan said to him. No, I even saw a TV show or something on the internet once where Turkish... Uh, like miniseries or something along those lines, showing the Sultan, I think it was Abdul Hamid, with Herzl and whatever. So in other words, the idea was that, you know, they weren't going to make a deal with the Jews, and they didn't make a deal with the Jews. As a result, Eretz Yisrael didn't go to the Jews in the time of the Turkish Empire when Herzl was alive, and he died in 1904, and not for the 10 years after his death. In fact, if you want to get nitty-gritty... I don't want to do this too much, and get down into the detailed history of Zionism as a movement, you'll know that after 1904, when Herzl died, the movement had big problems because it was clear already that there was no way, Jose, that the Turks were ever going to give up Palestine under any circumstances. They wouldn't do it for money. It was not going to happen. And as a result, the Zionist movement had to withdraw into what they call Gagin's Vardarbeit, which means just concentrating on building up Zionism, Chutzlars, and so on and so forth. So on and so forth. Okay, fine. Fine. So now, um, here you had this empire called the Turks. And they ruled the Middle East. So I want to be clear. Besides the Europe stuff that I said before, and believe me, Erdogan knows this 24-7. All the Turks know this, what I'm telling you. It's no secret. It's basic history. Even after they lost, you know, Bulgaria and Romania and Hungary and so forth, the Yugoslavia, the Turks still had a huge empire in Asia, which means that the Ottoman Turkish Empire included what you today call Turkey, plus Syria and Israel and Lebanon and Jordan and Egypt, I'm not finished, and Saudi Arabia, including the Gulf Coast, 
and Iraq. You know, Baghdad was a Turkish provincial capital when the Benishkai was there in the 1800s. You know, he died in the early 1900s. It was an Ottoman-Turkish situation. And the Jews, relatively speaking, had it good over there for certain reasons. So, the Turkish emperor was pretty humongous. But they were broke like a, you know, broke, broke, broke. And they always had these problems. Okay, then came World War I in 1914. Let's, and the, the, the Turkish sultan was overthrown in 1908 by a certain group that called themselves the Young Turks, the Committee of Union Progress. And they're now the ones who really run the Turkish Empire, even though the Sultan was there as a figurehead. And those guys, who turned out to be pretty stupid, decided to join World War I on the side of Germany. Of course, there are reasons for this, but they didn't have to. In fact, if they would have been very smart, they just would have kept Turkey as a neutral during World War I. Then you'd have the Europeans fighting each other. On the one side, England, France, Russia. On the other side, Germany, Austria, Hungary. And then what do you call it? You know, have it out, you guys. For four years, 1914, 1918, you had like all quiet in the Western Front. You know, all these massacres and killings and trench warfare and poison gas and machine guns and the whole nine yards. Okay? And Turkey would have been out of it. First of all, that would have been a smart move, Stamazite. But they didn't do that. Instead, they joined the sides and they ended up on the losing side. So Turkey made a gigantic mistake thinking they could beat England and England will lose the war. In fact, it's incredible how stupid it was. That's the Adashem. <laughs> you see? Because what was the result of Turkey fighting in World War I? Turkish Empire. Uh, there was a lot of fighting in, there in World War I. And by the way, they defeated the British a bunch of times. It's not that they were uh, wimps. Uh, they wiped the British out in Gallipoli and in, in, in Iraq. I mean, so you, you can be mine and see. So, you know, they weren't stupid soldiers at all. And nevertheless, by the time the war's over, the Allies won. And the British and the French, especially the British, physically conquered what you and what I just described as the Turkish Empire in the Middle East. The British, physically, the British Army physically conquered Egypt. They were already there, actually. And Syria and Lebanon and, and Israel and Jordan or Palestine, as they called it at that time, and so forth. And they also conquered Iraq. And the Turks had to give in. And they lost the war. I mean, they surrendered. And as a result, they lost all their empire. They're lucky that they held on to what you call Turkey, the part we call today. That was a close call also, because the British, the French, the Italians, the Greeks, and others invaded Turkey proper. And wanted to divide up into different zones. And the Turks, after the First World War, were able to rally themselves under Ataturk and take all that back. So, so Turkey, what the country we call Turkey, they held. But all the other stuff was gone. Okay? This is a double you do it. So if you're a Turkish like Erdogan, you say, why did we make the mistake of joining World War One? We could have had it great and we still Turkey would still be ruling the Middle East. I'll go farther than that. The Sultan of Turkey, for various reasons, was also like the Pope, the Caliph of Islam, which was very, very, you can imagine how prestigious it is. You, you can imagine. So, um, oh boy, the, 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 the British abolished, the Allies abolished the Sultanate in, um, in 1922, I think. 
So in other words, the Ottoman Empire, as part of being under the Ottoman ruling family, was just disintegrated, was gone. Just disintegrated. Now, so if you're Turkey, you say, why did we do this? We would still have a big empire today. But it goes more than that. It goes more than that. At the time they lost their territory, that's just when oil was starting. Gasoline was starting. That's when the cars and all that stuff started. So can you imagine? Stelzefort. The Ottoman Empire would not have gone to World War I. They would have survived World War I. They'd still be there today. And they would own the whole doggone Middle East. So they'd have all the oil. Imagine one empire that has all the oil in Iraq, plus all the oil in Saudi Arabia, plus all the oil in those Gulf states, you know, uh, Bahrain, all this other junk, plus Kuwait. You know what I'm saying? It boggles the mind. From being a poor country in deep debt, they would go in the other direction. All these rich Arab sheiks and stuff like that would be Turkish government. They'd be rolling in the rhino. And they could probably, you know, dominate the world. You know what I'm saying? Because I'll say it again. Imagine a single country had uh, control all that oil. Okay? All that oil. It boggles the mind. And they certainly wouldn't have been interested in no Zionism or anything like that. And the result would have been... Well, a Chinaman's chance that Eretz Yisrael would ever fall in the hands of the Jews. It's not the slightest chance. Because if they weren't going to be interested in the slightest way, when they were broke and deep in debt, beyond broke, it's going to be the opposite in the 20th century when they would have been loaded beyond belief. Because just close your eyes for a minute and imagine the unbelievable wealth that would have accrued to them, to the Turkish Empire, the Turkish government, headquarters in Istanbul, if they would control all that oil in the 20th century. Erdogan knows that. Every Turkish kid knows that. All you have to do is look at the map and have a little bit of common sense. So, you don't see the Adeshem in that? <laughs> you get what I'm saying? You don't, you don't see... And there's no way that you would have something called Balfour Declaration and the world should acknowledge in any way whatsoever you know, the Jews have some right or, or something like that to the territory of Israel or Palestine in the absence of the collapse of the empire of Turkey as a result of its misguided entry into World War I. To me, you know, <laughs> it, it defies logic, and whenever you see something defy logic, but it happened anyway, that's how you see the hand of Hashem. I'm serious. Now, it sounds like I'm being some frummy type of thing, but not really. I think, as I said before, the Turks know this, and it drives them crazy. They have to ask themselves, Mazos Osa Allah Alona, you know, why did God um, mess us over? And you could be doggone sure that a guy like Erdogan and those types want to get it back. They don't know exactly how yet, but they would like to reconquer, you know, uh, Syria and Iraq. Believe me, they want to take over Iraq and Saudi Arabia and all this other junk, in which case they'll be loaded. So instead of Erdogan having to, to invite the president of Israel to visit, and he said, he said basically, I hate Israel, but we need him. He said those words. You know, it's 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 a, it's a national interest. I hate it. And he has to kiss up to the sheiks. They they gave him ten billion dollars, which to them is is chump change. You know, between Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and this one and there and Kuwait, I mean, it's nothing. You know, see. So notice Turkey, ever since then, has been like a poor country. Turkey remains today a poor country. It could be worse off, but uh, you know, it's 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 not a well-to-do country. Uh, the economy there is uh, in Gahak lately. The Turks themselves 
have been are all worried about the Kurds and the Armenians and this other business. So they have the they could have been on top of the world. They could have been on top of the world. And then you would not have anybody living in Eretz Israel except maybe a few people in Meshar. I mean, that's what it would have happened. That that's what it would happen. And uh would that be better? You know, I don't think you can make that case. So if somebody tells me that they don't see the miracles from the time of Pesach, all the rest of it, I understand what you mean. It's hard for a person sometimes, depending on your state of mind, your, I shouldn't say state of mind, but your hashkafa, to see you believe in the supernatural or not in the supernatural. And Pesach is all about supernatural. But it's also hard to my mind, and I can only tell you what my mind If you know the events of history, to say that you just have a lot of coincidences. Because... An atheist would have to say, you know, Zionism and the Jews really lucked out that coincidentally, Turkey decided to join the Germans and lose the First World War, and then territory should be taken over by England, and it just so happened that England would have a big Zionist lobby, and then it just so happened that they would agree to this, and that the League of Nations would agree to that, and then you'd have the building up of the issue, and finally a, a, a Jewish state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, 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 it's hard to imagine. Uh and so you see, to me, plain as the nose in the face, that history has a direction. Now, I'm Jewish. So I'm looking through my prism. I'm not Erdogan. I think, I flatter myself that I can sort of see it through his vision simply because of what I just told you. If I said you sold a house in uh, Brooklyn, and then it turns out the house was on top of a gold mine, you'd never forgive yourself, you know? So if the Turks blew their, their policy... And as a result, they left it, you know, that, that uh, uh, they let go of a gold mine. Because I'll tell you, they lost their empire right around 1919, 1920. That's exactly when oil started to super take off. You know and I know. That's when you started to get an automobile revolution. And everything went on oil, still does. And so the wealth that would have poured in would be just unbelievable. As it happens, the British broke up the Middle East in small pieces. They used their power to help the oil companies, British oil companies. I get that. You know, I understand them, and that's that's one way of doing business. And colonialism, imperialism, and all the rest of it. I understand that. Uh, but, oh yo yo, but <laughs> the, uh, the the They were able to do this because they dealt with small, helpless little shikdoms. Uh, you know, the Kingdom of Iraq, you know, the, 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 the Arabia, which had no zero technology and so forth. If it would have been the Turkish Empire, it was, it was like a European state. Then all the money would have gone to the state. That's push it to me. And Israel would be non-existent today. So, if you just look at current events, and with this I'll conclude, you see... You know, miracles of a certain type. It's not like, you know, dumps for a day of Kenim. But on the other hand, if you look at it from a perspective of 100 years, and that's all it takes, as I saw you do is go back not to 2022, but 1912. If you look at it with that perspective, you kind of see dumps for a day of Kenim. I mean, you know, not in the same blatant way, but nevertheless in a very powerful way. And that doesn't prove anything because it's possible to explain everything I just talked about strictly through power politics, and I do understand that, and history deals with causality, 
and to understand the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the modern Middle East is a question of historical causality. But if you look at what we would call meta history, you know, the the the, the grand story as it comes together after all the details are put together. Me myself and I, I think you do see the Yadashem. You know, I don't, I don't think that's a that's a you know looking at, at fairy tales or hocus pocus. Uh, so knowing that. Imagine a guy like President Erdogan in Turkey every time he has to deal with Israel or the Arabs or the rest of the Middle East. He's basically saying, you know, everything you got is really mine and all the money you've made in the last hundred years, the zillions, should go to us and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, it ain't happening, baby. Now, as far as I'm concerned, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. But, you know, this is, this is the way, you know, the situa- situation is developed. We don't know what Rabban Shalom has in mind. And for all I know, Turkey and Israel might end up being close allies again. Or the opposite. Or the opposite. I don't trust them before I can throw them. But, you know, you, you never know. And I think that's just interesting food for thought as we approach the week of, of Pesach. So again, I want to thank the Pollocks for sponsoring this. And Miss Pollock will have a happy birthday tomorrow because April 12th will be tomorrow. And with that, I wish you all a uh, easy week getting ready for Pesach. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.